John Boyega, I this is a very different kind of role for him, or yeah, at least from what I've he's seen. Great. You would not believe for a minute he's British. He's British? Oh, I had no idea. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are in San Diego, California. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we're going to be catching up uh, with the second half of the Barbenheimer experience Mm -hmm. with uh, Obi Homie. After that, we're also going to talk about, from Netflix, the movie They Clone Tyrone, which didn't get a lot of press, but I'm well, seeing it, a, I was seeing a lot of positive stuff about it, and the cast was really cool, so I thought it was worth going back and looking at. It also released, like, in the middle at of that everything. time, in the middle of summer, when there was literally, like, every movie came out. I... I yeah. I also saw uh, Mission. I mean, we're not going to be talking about this on this episode, but I also saw Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, and uh, all I will say is, man, had they just like waited for like a November release, uh, I, I do not think it would have struggled the way it did. But um, but also, they didn't know that they would be up against a fucking meme marketing. Right, and two of the biggest movies of the year. Yeah, which kind of came out of nowhere for, uh, you know, a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, a few episodes back, we did talk about the big blockbusters that are coming out and how there's been a lot of uh, disappointments in the box office uh, with very expensive movies. And we kind of guess which ones may or may not do well people can go back and and listen to that i believe that was our uh yeah indiana jones episode which also underperformed you know it's a mission impossible movie it's it's a crowd pleasing action blockbuster um had it come out at a different time during the year i think it it wouldn't be a question of its success uh you know it here's it okay there's a decent chance that we might see Tom Cruise die on film. Right. That's the ongoing joke. At this point, I think he's going to die of old age before he falls off an airplane. I mean, I'm sure that they have those stunts so, like, fucking triple safety checked. Right. But you never know. Like, shit goes wrong sometimes. Um apparently this last one they filmed like the big gag stunt the first thing uh because tom cruise was like in case it goes wrong uh i you know i don't want there to be a movie in the can that can't get released because we didn't get this stunt right so so they're just doing like the craziest shit first and then like all the dialogue i think this will all culminate when tom cruise stars in an Evil Knievel biopic. 
Um, you just fucking broke my brain a little bit because, <laughs> like, goddamn that. How has that not happened? Like that needs to happen. Holy shit! <laughs> For the streaming homework, we're also going to go. We're <laughs> looking back at 1977 Slapshot, which you assigned uh, from Netflix. Uh-huh. We're going to uh, talk before, about that for sure. <laughs> yes. Before we get into the main reviews, I did want to do a little bit of an RIP. We had, in the last uh, couple weeks, uh, three pretty notable deaths, um, starting with Paul Rubens, who most people know of as Pee Wee Herman. But he was a big comedic actor, big character actor. He was in a lot of stuff. Uh, he originally uh, was a player in the the sketch comedy group The Groundlings, where he developed the Pee Wee Herman character. And uh, then after that became a television show and a movie, um, he he went he went on from there. And he he'd been in a lot of fun uh, fun little roles where you. People might have not even known it was him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he was, uh, I mean, comedic genius, absolutely, inf literally influenced whoever your favorite comedian is right now. Like, they owe something to Paul Rubens. And he was thinking about his fans up till the very end. It's just gut-wrenching, absolutely heartbreaking. Um, yes. Yeah, so if, if obviously if you've never seen the Pee Wee Herman films or the TV show, uh, seek those out, uh, especially the first one, the, the first Tim Burton feature, mm -hmm. um, is, is, uh, notable, but, uh, he was also a lot of fun in the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Uh, he played a really, uh, interesting, weird role in the movie Blow, where he plays a drug dealer. <laughs> um, he, he's one of those actors that literally, like, made everything he did better. Like, he yeah, just absolutely uh, elevated whatever it was by 100%. Yes, a mystery man, uh, another fun character there. So, you did, know. Do you watch uh, What We Do in the Shadows? Did he have a guest spot on that? The TV yeah, show? so. So there was a um, this episode where they like talked to a vampiric council and he reprised his role from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's it's brilliant. Uh, the other person I wanted to give a shout out, uh, one of three who also passed away very young, Angus Cloud. He was uh, one of the. Uh, side characters in the show Euphoria. Okay, I, um, I saw when his name popped up, but I'm not familiar with him. So, okay, Euphoria, that makes sense why I wouldn't know him. <laughs> he was found on casting call. He's not a trained actor. Oh, damn. Um, I don't even think he was found on casting call, like, per se. Like, I don't think he, like, came in with a script or anything. I think they literally just found him like in the wild and was like, you're perfect for this role. So he was kind of doing a version of himself in that, in that show. Mm. But, uh, in the show, he plays like a, a very young drug dealer with a heart of gold. And he, uh, he was like in his twenties, right? 
Yeah, he's 23, I think. Damn, way too young. And he was a lot of people's favorite character. He was You always rooted for him. He, because of the line of work he does in the show, he's always on the, is he going to survive this episode? We don't know. And everybody uh. always pulls for him because they love his character so much. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, not for nothing. I mean, this is certainly the least of... Uh, the tragedy that goes into his his young passing, but I, I don't know what they're going to do with that show. I mean, they're losing people left and right, not not always to death, but uh, one of their main characters they've essentially wrote out of the show because she didn't get along with the director. Um, so it's the new Glee. Yeah, pretty much, except for it happened in three seasons instead of, like, four. Uh, sure, yeah, but you know what I mean, like, uh, you know, Nobody Glee. liked that movie. What was that show, The Idol, that just came out but yeah. the, by the same director, the same uh, showrunner? Yeah, yeah. That was He's losing a lot of goodwill really fast, and, yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. I, I think... Uh, the next season's probably going to be the last season. I'd be very surprised if they're able to pivot. But, um, yeah, I really liked his character a lot. He was just a magnetic presence on the screen. I was really excited to see him develop as an actor. He had a really interesting, uh, very uh, quiet, cool charisma mm -hmm. um, that you don't see a lot. And, um, yeah, too soon. Yeah, damn. Too soon. And finally, uh, director William Friedkin. Uh, yes. yeah, huge he, loss. One of the greats, uh, one of the, the big, biggest voices that come out of the 70s, New Hollywood. Most people are probably aware of him because he was the director of The Exorcist, but he's done many films and was making films pretty much till the end and making exciting work. Like he wasn't one of those guys mm -hmm. who sort of fell apart in the nineties or just started making Maudlin's children movies or, you know, that kind of stuff. Like he always pushed himself and was always doing challenging work. Um, well, I mean, I mean, here's the thing, the exorcist alone, I feel yeah. like, gives you you know gives you lifetime legend status but like you said he has directed so much more than that and uh, yeah absolutely um a visionary so just a small list uh right before the exorcist he had made the french connection mm -hmm. um which was also nominated for best picture uh he made the the movie sorcerer uh, he made the movie Cruising with uh, with Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. um, to Live and Die in L.A., which is like the greatest Michael Mann movie that Michael Mann didn't direct. <laughs> uh, but it's really good. I mean, it's up there with, with uh, Thief or Heat or what have you in that mm -hmm. kind of vein. Um, he made uh, the movie Bug. Uh, yeah, that was the a, movie a version much later of one, right? Yeah, that was in 2006. 
And in 2011, uh, with Matthew McConaughey, he made the movie Killer Joe. Well, and that, uh, that was kind of the beginning of the McConaissance, wasn't it? Right in there, yeah. yeah. And both, both Bug and Killer Joe uh, were written um, by Tracy Letts. Tracy Letts, yeah. Uh, yeah. They were they were stage plays that he filmed, right? Yeah, and which he uh, one of his first films, first motion pictures. He he had made uh, some documentary stuff and shorts and and what have you beforehand, but uh, was also based on a play, the original Boys in the Band, which, which we did. Yeah, we uh, reviewed the remake uh, of a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, which was incredibly ahead of its time. I mean, that movie came out in, like, 1970 and was, you know, talking about stuff that people were not prepared for at that no. time. No, and we um, might we might discuss a little bit of that in Slapshot. Oh, boy, we might. <laughs> but let's go ahead and get into Oppenheimer. I know people are still catching up with it. I, I saw on a Sunday afternoon... Um, not even a Sunday in... afternoon. I saw it a Sunday morning. And... Well, it turned into afternoon by the time the movie was done. Yes, that is true. Which is probably, <laughs> which is probably why I was confused. But um, did you get to see it in glorious seventy millimeter? No, I I saw, it, but it was a pretty it was a pretty big screen, one of the larger ones. Um, but it wasn't seventy mil. I know they've expanded the seventy millimeter. IMAX um, version of it, but uh, I mean, it was there was still a decent amount of people there for eleven thirty on a Sunday. Sure, uh, two, especially two for, weeks after it was released. Especially for you know a biopic, um, right? A drama, the, yeah, yeah, a historical biopic, baby. Um, so go ahead and describe the ins and outs, the goings-on of Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is the drama of J. Robert Oppenheimer spanning from his, you know, early years in college, uh, academia, uh, through the Manhattan Projects and the development of the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, culminating in uh, uh, the government bureaucracy uh, to strip him of his security status um, from the United States government. Yeah. I mean, that's the log line. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I've, it's been interesting hearing some of the discourse around this movie because it's a historical event. So it's it's sort of designed like a thriller because that's what Christopher Nolan does. Um, But it's a thriller where you know what happens at the end. So in a way, he sort of he sort of uses that mm -hmm. old Hitchcockian adage of if you want to create suspense in a scene, you show the audience the bomb underneath the table. But sure. the characters don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in this case, it's a literal bomb hanging from an oil rig, uh, you know. In the middle of the desert. Yeah. 25 feet in the air. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it also covers a lot about his life and specifically 
sort of the the beginnings of the Red Scare and how that was played into how they would try and keep him from giving his advice or his insights into the future technology of 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 nuclear not just his uh uh influence regarding nuclear energy but also his political career uh, you know completely cutting it off right at a time when this technology was feared to be spreading to uh, other political or national allies and enemies across the globe. If we're really going to get in the weeds of it, you know, Oppenheimer uh, had known social groups, um, communists, you know, uh, connectivity. And during the war, uh, to defeat the Nazis, the race to beat the Nazis to the atomic bomb, that wasn't a big thing. Once the Nazis weren't in the picture anymore and all of a sudden it was the race to see if the Soviets can catch up with us, then all of a sudden it was like, ooh, okay, maybe Oppenheimer should be completely blacklisted from everything ever. Right. And, you know, even during the time when he's building the bomb or assembling his his team to build the bomb or uh, even during his time in academia, this history of uh, being affiliated, however loosely or closely, with known communists and the Communist Party at the time mm-hmm. – uh, was always sort of hanging over his head and and it was it was a, a stick and carrot that the American government was able to use to intimidate him into playing by their rules yes yeah yeah uh, and essentially this is really what the movie is about like I yeah I kind of expected the movie to be more about the bomb. Um, Mm -hmm. But it is much more about his political leanings. And uh, I mentioned the glorious 70 millimeter thing because, I mean, there is the sequence with the Trinity test, um, you know, where they actually try the atomic bomb out. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, this movie is a lot of dudes in suits and offices talking Right. I mean, that's what it it's it's more of a um, uh, procedural thriller or not even a procedural thriller so much as a as a uh, like kind of white collar uh, battle of the wits. I, I just think it's interesting that they made the IMAX and the 70 millimeter such a selling point when that's you know, maybe 10% of the actual movie. Um, well, I mean, it's as far as set pieces go, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty light on action set pieces. It's in, And for a lot of people who are coming in to this looking for Christopher Nolan doing Christopher Nolan shit, they mm-hmm. might be fairly underwhelmed by the lack of action in the movie. But I think he... It's a handsome movie. It looks good. 
Oh, the, sure. Know, it, I, it's he, it's a shot by uh, Hoyt Van Hoytima, who he's been working with um, at least since Interstellar or maybe even before that. And, you know, there's sequences that are in black and white. There's sequences that are in color. Uh, you know. No, it, it, it is very much a visual movie. I just. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that so much of the marketing, um, you know, besides the sort of viral Barbenheimer marketing. Sure. Which they had no control over. Um, a lot of the marketing sort of emphasized this, uh, the visual language of the movie, uh, where there is a lot of it that I don't think seeing it in 70 millimeter would make a difference. Um, and, and, you know, that's coming from seeing it in 70 millimeter. That isn't to say it wasn't shot well, like it's, it's still gorgeous. Um, but I do think the majority of the movie is more closed in than I was sort of expecting it to be. Right. I mean, we had this conversation a little bit when we talked about the movie Air, which is another movie about guys in boardrooms talking and deliberating <laughs> mm -hmm. and staring at whiteboards or chalkboards and yeah, designing things. Yeah, there's a things. lot of... There's a lot of chalkboard acting in this movie, mm, but um... sure. <laughs> and and I, but I think you can see the difference between oh yeah what Christopher Nolan does with those limited spaces and what Ben Affleck was doing in Air, where Ben Affleck I think was leaning on too much stylization mm. or too many camera gimmicks to create a sense of of action or kineticism whereas christopher nolan and his dp just have a much better sense of camera placement and lighting and creating a mood and of well, course it, it, editing editing it, editing editing this movie lives and dies on its editing okay so you're you're jumping the gun a little bit for me here um because uh yeah, the comp the visual composition of this movie is a thousand times more interesting than something like Air, um, yeah. which is pretty boilerplate. I mean, like you said, it's it's stylized, but it, it feels shallow. Um, whereas this is like the shots are comprised to tell the story; like everything is kind of feeding into its itself. Um, yeah. However, I do think this movie is edited within an inch of its life. Um, you know, the, it's a three hour long movie and I felt like solid two and a half hours of it almost feel montagey to me. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very quickly paced. Um, I think almost. No, not almost. I think too much so. Um, there are times when I just wanted to shake them and go, just just let this be a scene. Just let this be a scene where the characters talk and it's about something. And you don't need to rely on tricky editing to make me care about this. Like, you, there are uh, literally every fucking character actor you can think of is in this movie. 
Mm-hmm. And they are all churning out great performances. Not just character actors, stars. I mean, this, stars this and movie, character actors. There's a it's lot everybody. of star power. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of characters in the movie. But, um, yeah, and, and every time they introduce somebody new, you're like, oh, damn, okay, he's in this too. But I also, I wanted the editing to slow down for a minute and and let the performances let the actors do some of the work because it it started to feel like every scene was cut to a log line basically like it got to the point where it almost felt like a three hour long movie trailer it's so quickly cut and so quickly edited uh and there's this gorgeous score that's kind of constantly propulsing you forward um Mm -hmm. but i needed a break from that yeah no i i'm i'm of two minds i think there are moments where the movie's a little over edited um especially earlier on in the movie i think the movie has a a drive and a pace to it that it sort of propels you into the story i think he sort of knows that a lot that a lot of people are not inherently interested in, especially with the backstory of this character. They want to get to the bomb, so he has to create um, sort of momentum to get to that point, and he has to introduce so many players. Um, so and many de- fucking players. Yeah, I- and he's dealing in at least three different timelines. So, um, which well, uh, you could do okay. that sequentially if you wanted to. You could you could tell the story linear in a linear structure. Um, I actually think you know most of the time this style of montage editing from him kind of annoys me. Um, but in this case, I actually think it works more than it doesn't. And and I think uh. especially because the character himself, who's played by Killian Murphy is working ahead of his own moral compass. Like, he's he's putting everything, all of his sense and all of his political leanings and all of his, his work as an academic on the back burner to just get this project to completion. Mm-hmm. Like, he is, he's trying to sort of edit through his own moral compass to justify working on a project that's perhaps unjustifiable. Um, and I think that, that the, the editing is has a psychological effect to it, where in the case of something like Batman Begins or some of his other films that are sort of cut this way, um, or uh, Tenet has more of a story reason for it. But mm. I, I think... In this case, it's more there for emotional complexity. And I think that it actually plays mm. into scene work um, in creating juxtapositions. Uh, you know, the, I, the, I the after, I... the, the before, the after, the, the, the before, the during, and the after of mm. this event are all sort of at a race to this inevitability, this, this kind of doomsday experiment um and i i mean i i i don't throw this out lightly i think this is a great film 
And I don't mean great in the sense of like, oh, I had a good time at the theater or, you know, I'm going to give it an A or something like that. And I mean, this is like a great piece of cinematic art. And I haven't thought that about a Christopher Nolan movie in a good while. Um, and I think it, he, he's playing to his strengths. Now, there are, like I said, there are some times when the editing is a little, maybe it's just uh, takes a bit of an adjustment period to kind of find the rhythm of the movie. But once I was there and I could kind of, I knew what, where, sequentially we were in every sequence and what they were kind of leading up to. And he sort of drops in those, those uh, narrative connecting beats. Mm -hmm. That's when I was, I felt like, Oh, okay. I'm in good hands. I know where this is going. I know what I'm supposed to be getting out of these, these quick cuts to before and after. See, I, I think I, I think I'm going to have to disagree with you on this one. I, to me, this felt like I, I was getting Dunkirk flashbacks. Just tell me the story and I don't need the tricks. And I felt like this was a lot of tricks. This was a lot of trick editing. And, and I was, I, I stepped back for a second and breathe. And I, I felt like I never really got there. See, I felt like there was enough, there was enough scene work in the movie to oh, I, I, to justify. I absolutely think there was a ton of beats. scene work. I just felt like I only got to see like the first two pages out of a six-page scene. Yeah, I mean, I I I think to an extent that has always been Christopher Nolan. Like you know, I agree. I agree, and I in in with this the exception case, of very few movies, I think you could mm-hmm. you could argue Insomnia. I think you could argue uh, The Dark Knight, and I think you could argue um, uh, most of the Prestige. Those three, I think, are the most confident in long form scene work. Whereas the rest of his movies, I think he makes up for maybe what he lacks as a emotional storyteller in creating tension through construction of the movie, through form. But but that's what's frustrating to me is I don't think he is lacking there. I think he knows how to direct a scene. I I, I think he is perfectly... He is confident in that and uh, maybe not confident, but he knows what he's doing. He his act. He always casts these fantastic actors and well, that lets doesn't them hurt. Do, yeah. And lets them do their thing. Right. And the camera is it feels like the camera is just there a lot of the time. Yeah. But it, it feels like the this sort of trick editing is like a crutch. Almost, especially in this movie to me, I, I, I was actually kind of frustrated by it for a lot of the movie. I like, I felt like the black and white sequences were the most actual movie I got. Yeah. I just didn't have that problem with this. And I was prepared for that. I, I was expecting, especially early on in the movie when, 
when we already kind of get an idea of the structure and mm. he, he there's just kind of frames within frames right because he's he's being interrogated uh uh further into the future after the point of the drop uh mm. and then there's another interrogation sequence when they're just checking his background and uh, in, in getting his security clearances together and those those two those two interviews frame different sequences in different ways um and and here's i do think that christopher nolan is fantastic at building tension you know like ultimately this is the movie's like climax is about whether or not he's going to get a security clearance uh which is not an earth-shaking event to anybody i mean sure it, it, it can be but you know what i mean it's not a life or death thing but he treats it like a life or death thing and and that tension comes through absolutely uh it, it, and right. i do think that is what his style is great at is building towards these tense moments now for me the movie doesn't work in two places and i think unfortunately for him a lot of the times he treats romantic interests in a movie as an ingredient in his stew mm-hmm. to 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 try and create the illusion of emotional storytelling but it never mm-hmm. I, I never believe it in his movies like i could care less about uh his tryst with um with yeah with with Florence Pugh some of the scene work with Emily Blunt as his wife is is good but it doesn't read as a marriage it, it, he talks they talk together in a scene just as like just as in the same way as when he's in a scene with Matt Damon or Robert Downey Jr or whoever uh, yeah and and, and uh, so to me this is a prime example of a victim of the editing because i i feel like uh as an actor and nothing camera, against those actresses. They're no, both, no, no, no. Yeah, they're both doing uh, good work. I, I, I but, think his approach is just so cold that. Well, and as a character, I feel like Killian Murphy just has more chemistry with Florence Pugh, and mm-hmm. the way, the way that romance is sort of resolved, uh, and the way Emily Blunt is introduced, it, it, it it's awkward. It's jarring yeah i mean it just kind of feels like he felt like including it to bridge certain different or different parts of his life and to uh sort of underline well you know it it felt like the where he was at different points like he was you know he was with you when he was flirting with 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 these uh these radicals in Mm in the communist party and, and 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 she's a more radical character so it's yeah it's literally like he's he's flirting with this idea of destabilization um you know right. he's sed- he's seduced by it but ultimately like yeah he, that's the problem is those scenes work only as metaphor and right. n- not as actual 
And that that's what I mean as by cold is yeah. his approach to women in movies most of the time, or specifically his love interests, not mm. always as characters, but definitely his love interests, is he always treats them more as an idea than as a person. Yes. Like yeah. they're always there to But in this in, one Emily Blunt's an way... alcoholic, so Right. Character. And, and, <laughs> and she's good in the movie, you know, I don't have any No, any she's problem. fine. It's just it's but, so surface level. Right. And and they don't totally justify their addition to the runtime. Yeah. Um I agree with you there completely. Uh but there's some really cool performances in here. I th- I mean, Robert Downey Jr., this is some of his best work we've seen in a long time. Yeah, um, it is nice to see him, like, do a serious movie and take it seriously. Like, right. he, he earned all this goodwill with Iron Man, and now, like, now that he's post-MCU, like, this is the shit I want to see him doing. Right, especially as he's getting older. Jason Clark is really good in this movie. Uh, 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 Sadfi, um, Ben Sadfi. Oh, yeah, yeah. He plays yeah, he, a, he kinda a really comes fun out of nowhere. Role. Yeah. Um, I mean, Alden, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, Ehrenreich who, yeah. who was also great, I think was also probably the best part of Cocaine Bear. He's having a good year. He's having a very good year. And we get Alden Ehrenreich and Dane DeHaan in the same movie. If we can get <laughs> Alden Ehrenreich, Dane DeHaan, and Leonardo DiCaprio in the same movie, then we'll, uh, you know. We'll... It's like a handsome Harvard boy explosion. Right. Well, I mean, the, Ehrenreich and, uh, and Dane DeHaan were both compared to young Leos. Um, I can see points. Dane DeHaan more than Aaron Reich, but okay. I mean, I'm um, here for it. I like all of them as actors. Yes, it's a smorgasbord of incredible uh, uh, performances. Uh, Matt Damon, now, I, I don't think his standout, but he is he is serving. He's doing what you want Matt Damon to do. I think um, he's. I I think he borderline overacts in this movie. Okay. I mean. Time, I'm not going to disagree with you. There's times uh, when he, when he's doing just fine, and then there's sometimes when I feel like he's not in the same movie as everybody else. Like everyone's feels- kind of playing to the tone, and for some reason, I don't know if he was harder to direct it for for Nolan or or what, but he he comes in like doing this really big performance and I don't know if maybe he's trying to make a point out of like um military American exceptionalism or something. I don't know. Like I think he's I, a little I, arch in the movie. I but I almost think that works for his character. So I'm I'm gonna defend it. Um also uh, shout outs to David Krumholtz and Josh Hartnett, who we have not seen either of them in a minute, and they are both fantastic in this movie. Yeah, welcome additions to the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were they were some of those ones, and uh, Dalmatian. Uh, uh, what? Uh, oh, oh uh, D- David D- uh, Dastmalshane. 
Yeah, who was in uh, Suicide Squad, and he was in the the Dark Knight, which is probably how he has his Nolan connection. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, very small, quirky character actor, but uh, in this, he he gets a lot to chew on. Um, in scenes where there's just you know wall to wall character actors and the camera gets to focus on him a couple times fucking rami malek casey affleck like we could literally go on all day naming all of the fucking incredible actors that are in this movie right and there's some like one scene wonders in here and there's some who are there uh during very key sequences and 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 stretches of the movie um you know i mean mostly it's a three-hander between killian murphy matt damon and robert downey jr they are the ones who are the who are holding it down but Mm -hmm. within that there are incredible performances in and out of this movie all the way through it's a who's who and (laughs) in that it never feels it, it never feels feel like stunty. too much. Everyone no. feels like they're there to serve the movie. And With I, the exception I, of Matt Damon, I think, who's who's a little big in the I, But I, for his character, I think that that works. I, I think, like, you, you need this sort of imposing figure that... Uh, it, no, I, I liked Matt Damon in the part. Um... Uh, but yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel like stunt casty. It's not like, oh, here's another cameo. Here's another cameo. Uh, you know, it's like they're all just these incredible actors who get, you know, maybe a minute or two within a three hour mo- movie to shine. And then when they get their moment, they take it and it fucking works. Yeah, I wonder what the shoot if there was a big discrepancy between the shooting script and the uh the script that the actors got. You hear these stories sometimes mm-hmm. where like in the case of uh the thin red line, there's uh I forget who it was, but there's a, a character in the thin red line who's a pretty small character who mm-hmm. when he took the role he was the main character. Mm. And oh, the movie, sure, yeah. The movie changed so much between what they shot and what they edited that he ended up being like not even 20 minutes of the movie. And he, he went in thinking he was the main actor of the movie. Sure. I mean, yeah, that happens all the time. Or you hear about, you know, someone who's cast as like a small part and then they they write the part to be bigger because it's like you just want to hold on to that is you know it, uh um well uh, that's happening on set though i mean at least those people are who know sure, i'm talking yeah. about i think it might have been adrian brody who went to uh the the premiere and then sat there and was like i'm not in this movie i thought i was the star Oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> like, he yeah, was this... in it, but it wasn't in it as much as he thought he was. Like, sure. they totally restructured based on the footage they shot. Well, because and that's that, how okay, Terrence but, Malick But works. that brings me back to my frustration about Oppenheimer as a movie is I, I felt like there was a lot of that. I felt like every scene I was like, I want to see, like, I feel like I didn't get 
I feel like all of the the meat of this scene was just sort of cut down to a minute long segment versus actually like trusting it to be a full scene. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Thin Red Line Man thing is a is is a brilliant film. I mean, regardless of how it came together, sure. um, I think that's a work of art. And I and in, in a similar way, I think this is uh, feel I got a similar feel to it. Um, I mean, they're not similar movies, but mm-hmm. I I I if even if I learned that the shooting script and the and the script that oh, the sure. actors had were wildly different. I would think that they still made the right choices. I absolutely think that the shooting script and the the written script, or what we got in the end product, are very different. I think, and I don't know. Uh, I I felt like this 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 one left me a little cold. I actually felt like. Uh, to me, it felt like a lot of uh, the things that frustrate me about Christopher Nolan movies. And I think it's probably the best film of the year so far. Oh, shit. Okay. All right. Yeah, this is the one to beat for me. Um, and I i mean, I went in like three hours. Okay, let's let's do this. And by and there were even points in the movie where I was like kind of waiting for the movie and then once once we get to the end and we get to the the you know the the, the meaning of it all or whatever mm-hmm. i was like oh this is actually like exceptional like this i i, I witnessed something today see i I wanted that. I wanted that so bad and I I wonder if it's just a difference of expectations. Um but I I I wanted that like devastation. I wanted all of that and it th- th- by the end of it I was like, yeah, that was fine. Like I I felt like it was solid. I I don't think it's a bad movie by any means. Um uh but to I don't know, to me it just it I fully recognize that I probably need to see it again because I, I wonder how much of it was based off of expectations, but it it uh it kind of disappointed me. See, I've I've been kind of hot and cold with Christopher Nolan for a while. So at this point I have no reason to believe that I'm going to get excellence every time I see him. So even if I, I'm always there to see what he does because even when he fails, he's at least failing in an interesting way. Yeah, he's he's he is one of the few directors that I think like I will go to a movie based on his name alone. Um, even like I'm not necessarily mm. expecting to be blown out of the water, but I know it's going to be good. But some are much better than others for sure. Well, there's ones that I like more than others, yeah. and and I would even say like, as much as I uh, am glowing about Oppenheimer, this isn't one I'm going to go back to a lot. Like it's 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 kind of a lot of work, but right. like some of my, 
some of the best films out there, you know, in the realm of like a 2001 or a Tree of Life or what have you. Yeah, you're, um, you're not just going to throw it on on a Sunday afternoon. And that yeah. that isn't the indi- that doesn't indicate a good or a bad movie. Like there's plenty of dumb shit that I'll throw on just for fun, knowing that it's dumb shit. But like, I, I yes, I, I know what it's not a comfort movie. No. <laughs> but to, I to do me, think that it is an exceptional piece of work. Um and and I what I appreciate about Christopher Nolan and we we've talked a lot about him before. But what I appreciate about him is even though he's his only competition, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess with the exception of Barbie. Um <laughs> it's di- that's different. But yes. But yeah. you know, he he's really only competing with himself every time he goes out to make a movie. He's still pushing himself and he's still trying, he's still challenging himself and he's pushing the form and he's not resting on his laurels and I agree with that making the uh, Micronauts movie or something. And and that's, that's why every time he has something, I'm going to turn out for it. Uh, It's just uh, like you said, he's competing with himself. And to me, this, this left me feeling a little. You right. felt like you were watching a person conducting an experiment. Yeah, than I, I, I felt similarly to this as I did when I saw Interstellar, and as I did when I saw Dunkirk. I'm like, yeah, this is good. Like, I again, it's not a bad movie, um, but. For me, a lot of it didn't work the way I wanted it to. And See, this is the type of movie, and they don't do this anymore. I'm dating myself now. But this is the type of movie that in, like, 1997, sure. they would, it, you know, let's say Oppenheimer was made the way it was made in 1977. And mm-hmm. then in every so many years, they would, on network television, be like, we are going to show Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer in a three night special. <laughs> uh, get out your VCR and and you try and record it, and like it, it feels like one of those kind of movies. Like I, I'm, you know, and maybe I'm drunk on it. I don't know. Maybe like ten years from now, I'm gonna recant this opinion, but I. I feel like this is a once in a generation kind of thing. It's like, you know, it's like in the world of like apocalypse now and things like that. See, I, I wanted that. I wanted that viewing experience. And when I, when I left the theater, it was like, sure. Uh, it was a Christopher Nolan movie. Like, I, I don't know. It, it, like I said, it left me kind of cold, but, um, yeah. Let's grade it. Let's grade it. I'm I'm gonna give it an A minus, despite all the the nice things I said. Um, specifically because I, I the uh, the Florence Pugh and uh, Emily Blunt stuff doesn't doesn't really work for me. Um, but uh, otherwise, I think it's it's uh, exceptional. I'm giving it a B. Solid okay. B. And for you, that's like an F. <laughs> because no. you don't give anything no, no, no. you always... a c a c minus or a d is an f to be a b <laughs> is like yeah this was good. like I, I, and i fully admit that i probably need to see it again but um <laughs> i i to me this is not nolan's best work 
Uh, and uh, yeah, like you said, for you, this is the movie to beat this year. That is not the case for me. I was like, yeah, sure. This is good. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm giving it a B. All right. All right. Well, we'll move on uh, to our second movie of the week. And this is the Netflix original film, They Clone Tyrone, uh, which is sort of a sci-fi comedy about uh, a man named Fontaine, played by John Boyega, uh, who lives in sort of a rough neighborhood, is, uh, you know, dealing in different kind of low-level street crime, drugs, weapons, etc., and but he you know he's getting by he has a younger brother that he's trying to take care of he has a troubled mother who won't leave the bedroom um and he sort of sees this world around him of of sort of economic disparity and decay and one day he gets in an accident where or an altercation where he believes he's been shot until he wakes up, much like you would during a nightmare, and he continues on with his life as usual until he starts to notice more and more strange occurrences to lead him to believe that the world that he lives in is not as it seems. Um, he runs into Jamie Foxx as a pimp named Slick, and... Uh, Tayona Paris as a prostitute named Yo-Yo. They kind of become a uh, sort of threesome uh, in the movie, and they try are trying to sort of Nancy Drew their way through this situation in what ultimately sort of feels like... Uh, I mean, it's a very post-get-out. I think it's very difficult not to think of this movie in that context. Mm -hmm. But uh, more specifically, kind of reminded me of of the movie um, uh, Sorry to Bother You. Sure, yeah. By yeah, way I, of They Live. It, well, I was going to say, uh, yeah, I, I think this is sort of like uh, Boots Riley by way of Paul Verhoeven. Um, sure. Because yeah. there's a lot of satire, a lot of um, stylistic choices, a lot of um, commentary about society that is done sort of like um, peripherally. So, you know, there's like scenes where there's like a commercial on in the background and the commercial is very uh, satirical and – uh, biting commentary that by the end gets fully explained. And I, I'm maybe jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, that was kind of my biggest problem with the movie was like, I loved the vibe of like the first two acts. And then I feel like the third act is just like a little too, it wraps everything up in too nice of a package and I didn't need or want that. I, I think, I think I would have liked, uh, it, it to end a little more, um, open-ended 
And I think that would have played to what the movie was actually building towards um, instead of this, you know, the resolution feels very studio notes to me. Mm. Um, But yeah, but I'm also trying not to judge the movie too harshly based off of that. There's plenty of movies that I have enjoyed that kind of fall apart in the third act. Uh, I, I mean, on a vibes level, I loved this movie. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's effective mostly at all the things it's trying to do, and it's yeah. it's it's genre blending. It's very funny as a comedy. Jamie mm-hmm. Foxx is hilarious. Well, he's uh, and the chemistry... giving a career a career best performance in this. Like he's so good. <laughs> yeah, him and uh, Tayona Paris have really mm-hmm. great chemistry. Uh, really great comedic chemistry, especially. And, and um, it was really fun to see Tyona Paris uh, outside of, you know, the, the like Miss Marvel sort of stoic black superhero role and to actually get to play a character because she's really fucking good in this. Yeah, I, I, I'm am I wrong or was she in? Yeah, she was in Dear White People. Oh, the series or the movie? The movie. I have seen neither. Okay, she and she was in uh, a very serious movie in If Bill Street Could Talk, um, as well as Candyman, but the can the most recent Candyman uh, reimagining. See, um, I I know her from Candyman and um, from WandaVision, and uh, yeah, uh, she w- she'll be in the upcoming uh, the Marvels, but um, yeah, it it was fun to see her get to play you know, uh, a character. Um, so. and, and a big uh, comedic performance as yeah. well. And I mean, she gets a, she, she gets to do more to do... comedy in, in uh, Dear White People, but mm-hmm. in that one, um, she's kind of playing a, a sort of like self-hating college girl who wants to fit in with the white girls. Okay. Um, and so that's, uh, a little bit more constricted in the in her choices as a character, sure. whereas this she really gets to just throw it all out there and be really well, big. It, she also, I think, has to do a lot of the heavy lifting as far as the exposition goes. Like right. she she's sort of the character that kind of figures out what's happening and is sort of explaining it. Uh, yeah. But she gets to do it in very fun, funny ways um, and. and I'm just saying that to speak to her quality as an actor, because that type of role is often not very forgiving. Um, but she she has this charisma that is able to sort of carry this exposition dump dialogue uh, right. in really good, fun, interesting ways. Well, and the, and the dialogue is good enough. Yeah. And and well, uh, the characters are interesting and distinct and you know there's a a lot of high sci-fi uh horror concepts going on here but they they focus on the character's experience of that yeah that it it never feels like you're just sort of drowning in concept there's definitely a meta postmodern take on the genre it it's poking fun at all of those things 
And I mean, even they live, which to me, this movie just feels a whole lot like. Sure. Absolutely. Um, in, in, even down to certain sequences and certain uh, set pieces uh, yeah. and set design, <laughs> I was reminded a lot of the, of the chick- like, yeah, absolutely. Like the chicken restaurant specifically, uh, and and yeah, there's a few sequences. I know what you're talking about. I, I, well, and the the way it treats pop culture and and mm-hmm. and the sort of uh, conspiratorial nature of the plot and the totally. way it. Uh, it kind of blends camp and comedy with genre all at the same time. Um, like, yeah, I had a lot of fun with the movie. I, to me, this is yeah. like the exact kind of thing you want to flip on Netflix and watch just out of pure curiosity because you like the thumbnail or whatever. You want to see the new Jamie Foxx thing or whatever. And then you come away with being like, wow, that was actually like, Way better than I thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, it was actually a solid little sci-fi thriller. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and it's it's directed so uh, it's directed well enough too that it can sell these sci-fi concepts without getting bogged down in that. Like it, it because you know how many, especially lately, uh, you know how many times have we seen a thumbnail for some sci-fi concept movie. And it's just drivel where the conceit takes the center stage. Um, But what I like about this is it's, it's letting these characters interact with what if these sci-fi concepts were real and it it gives it more of a life than, than some of that other junk. Um, no, I, it, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, it doesn't feel boilerplate, and it doesn't feel... I mean, there's definitely a point of view here, and yeah. it belongs sort of in a world of of uh, interesting African-American or black genre that's happening yeah. right now. It, like I said, in a very post-get-out world, and you could, put, sure. you, you could put uh, Sorry to Bother You in that, in that lane as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I think this movie definitely, if you like either of those movies, this this movie is should be appealing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, John Boyega, I this is a very different kind of role for him, or yeah, at least from what I've he's seen. Great, you would not believe for a minute he's British. He's British. Oh fuck, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's he's absolutely great in this. Um. Uh, you, you know, if you know him primarily from like Star Wars, Star movies, Wars, yeah, which is probably what a lot of people know him from. It is refreshing to see him take on uh, a character with a little more grit and a little more complexity. Um, right. And and I like the way that they take these characters that could be very arch and very two-dimensional, um, but they're written with enough life and they give the actors enough room to explore them that they become way more interesting than I think they probably were on the page. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty arch, I would say. Um, but But what I'm saying is, like, when you have the right actors, that can work. 
Yeah, right? I mean, it's it, it playing to the comedy. I mean, it, yes. it, it it's tonally appropriate. And there's uh, a lot of funny concepts in this. And and there's an emotional reality to it, too. And there's a political point of view, for sure. Well, And also, like, on top of all of that... It works I as satire. Really, I really dug the... Um just the art design and the, like the, the set design and stuff like it, it feels sort of like quasi sci-fi, but, but grounded in a way that you wouldn't have gotten in like the eighties or nineties. Um, I, I just think like a lot of like the costumes and stuff were really cool and understated, but also like, you know, it's still red as the sort of, nondescript sci-fi futurism yeah i also like the the visual language of the movie in general i think you know the the cityscapes and the neighborhoods uh look very lived in and real and you know the and probably a lot of it is i i i would assume that um a, a good amount of the movie is not a set except for when it's obviously a set yeah um but uh, it's that juxtaposition that's a lot of fun. As you get this this very worn down yeah, environment, ur- very urbanized, yeah, and then and juxtapose that with this kind of sleek sci-fi thing that's happening in the, mm. at the same time. So yeah, I think this is a fun movie. I had a lot of I had a good time with it. Um, I I give it a uh, I give it a B plus. It's it's not gonna like change your life. It's not as the satire is not quite as sharp as those others that I compared it to, but mm-hmm. it's it's right up there. It's it's pretty good. No, I I agree with that assessment completely. I think um, you know if I have to criticize anything, I think it maybe a little over long. Um, I think this you know, probably could have been a nice 90 minute thriller. And, uh, the third act, uh, you know, I, I start to see the seams a lot more. Um, and it just, it felt a little too resolved for me. Yeah. There's Um, a place towards this end of the second act where I was feeling the momentum kind of like gear down Mm -hmm. instead of just, leading us to a, a natural conclusion. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then but, it, it kind of takes a, a a little bit to kind of get back to that point again. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it, but, this is exactly what I'm talking about that I think could have been streamlined a little bit more for story reasons versus what, you know, whatever ends up happening. But I do think it's a, a fun, competent little sci-fi thriller. Uh, yeah, I agree. B plus was my grade as well. All right, let's go ahead and talk about Slapshot, and uh, go ahead and give us the deets. Uh, so, a smaller hockey franchise is falling apart in a, a you know rural um, factory town. And they can't get the sort of town and crowd support. So 
after rumors about uh, the dissolution of the franchise start bandying about uh, Paul Newman, who is uh, a player and the head coach on the team, uh, decides that he is going to try and hustle his way into um, a sell for the team. Uh, and he, so he decides to kind of uh, let the hockey rules go and the team sort of transforms into this uh, menacing goon squad that starts winning games just based off of sheer brute force and spectacle. Um, and through this, this sort of uh, not giving a fuck, the town starts rallying behind them. And, you know, the, the audience attendance that wasn't there starts showing up. Uh, yeah. And they start, yeah, they start winning games and getting notoriety. And um, so this is uh, a pretty well-known movie, I mean, especially in terms of hockey movies. This is one of the first big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's directed by uh, George Roy Hill, who also made uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting, um, uh, The World According to Garp. He was a big director. And this is in sort of a interesting period of like film history because we're slowly drifting out of like the the uh nihilism of early seventies filmmaking mm-hmm. into that sort of like post rocky post jaws uh uh feel good entertainment movies but there's yeah, still well, remnants or artifacts from that early 70s especially in the way these characters are written and sort of the 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 situations are going through well i, that, I also think that comedy is interesting at this time sure. uh because this is before uh, this might sound more critical than I mean it, but mm-hmm. this is before um, jokes are as prevalent in movie structure, in in sort of screenwriting structure, right? Like uh, yeah. a, a lot of the humor is supposed to come from these sort of situational aspects. Um, this isn't like Airplane, uh, you know, where – if a comedy wasn't a full on spoof, they, they don't have like a joke per page kind of ratio, the way that comedy would eventually take place in the eighties and nineties. Um, so it's also uh, a year before animal house and yeah, but even animal house, like, like if you show animal house to, an audience now who is familiar with comedy now, I would see them probably being pretty unimpressed and not thinking it's that funny because it's not the, it's not structured the same way, right? It's not it's written not, for punchlines. Exactly. And, yeah. and 
comedies wouldn't really be written that way, again, outside of just pure farcical joke machines like Airplane, which are literally just set up delivery machines. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I could see showing this to somebody and them not finding it funny at all. In fact, um, I don't know how funny I found this movie. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree with what you're saying there. Um, I think... Well, it also suffers from a lot of things, right? Like, we're viewing this... I've never seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm viewing it from, you know, a, a, a lens of 2023 who... Like, I get that in the 70s, uh, you know, like, gay slurs were not a thing. But now when you hear them, it's like a chalkboard on nails, and it, it really sticks out. And, and to hear certain slurs, you know, once in a while is one thing, but the sexual politics of this movie are pretty fucked besides that. Yes, I... I... I came into that issue as well, especially early on when they're introducing the characters with, I guess this is like one of those movies where um, at a point in time had more uh, F-bombs than previous sure. movies. Like people get, were, I, this is when people started like counting how many times it comes up. Like the whole the thing. in, in 20- you know, I mean, shit, even if we watched super bad now, right? Like, yeah, we there's would stuff probably, that doesn't hold up. We would probably look back at some stuff and be like, ooh. Um, it, so I get that there is a, a, a cultural context that we're not going to understand. Um, even if we put that aspect aside, like, I really hate to be the guy who complains about a, a comedy, uh, but like that really seems to be the comedic engine of this movie is let's laugh at how badly these people can behave. And let's like the humor seems to come from the faux pas, right? It seems right. it, it comes from these people who, who, you know, like they're hockey players, they're, you know, this sort of rough and tumble blue collar dudes. I get that. But to point the finger and be like, well, it's so funny because they're saying these things that we can't say is like pretty shitty. No, I, I mean, I agree. I think I think you can get away with writing um, morally compromised characters. Sure. As long as you don't feel like the film is morally compromised as long as you feel like the 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 uh mm. perspective of the filmmakers and writers are not the same as the characters and they're yes. not selling their behavior as aspirational or cool then you can get away with you know really dark Hard, Absolutely. hard to relate to characters. The problem with this movie is it's part of that whole thing, and I would include a lot of the National Lampoon's movies into Absolutely. the into the 80s, um, and it doesn't really start changing until mid-80s, and even then, it 
there's remnants of that that go on. But uh, it's that boys will be boys, um, you know, sort of Playboy magazine style humor that just doesn't super hold up anymore. Or maybe it does for some people, but certainly not for me. Well, Um, I I bet it, it, you know, like if I had grown up with this movie, yeah, I could probably gloss over a lot of the gross stuff. Because as far as the 70s go, there were way grosser comedies. You know what I mean? Probably. And I, I think that's what stood out to me about it is like it didn't feel like the stuff that I found gross was what they were pushing for shock value. It felt like, well, that's just what dudes talked like in the 70s and I didn't like it. Right. I mean, so there's that. I don't yeah. want to like. I don't want to dwell on just that aspect of it, but it is certainly a hurdle uh, yes. to, yeah. to to uh, to get over if you're viewing this with 2023 vision and you're relatively young and progressive or whatever. It's just going to feel dated. My bigger problems with the movie, besides that, is. I never really got a sense of stakes in this movie. Like, I never really understood, like, where the narrative tension was. Like, I understood they wanted to sell the team to Florida. I understood that, you know, they were trying to pull off this this marketing gimmick to 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 get more notoriety so that they could have a bigger sale. And I understood that the themes of the movie of, like, comparing this ragtag group of hockey players who are hanging on by a thread to this factory town that's losing everything. I feel like that definitely could have been pushed more. Um, Yeah. And there, there are some interesting moments with that as a, a a story, but okay. So I don't think the movie's as interested in it as I am. Yes. I mean, I think that it, I think that it's, there well, uh but i i don't and it in you know one could say that's what the movie's about and i think that is what it's about when it's all said and done but i don't think that uh in the middle of the movie when they're on their tour mm-hmm. and they're racking up wins and he's like making these phone calls back home you know the paul newman character and he's like hey we're doing really well did you see us on this did you see? I'm, I'm like no i didn't i didn't see any of that I couldn't if you didn't tell me right now I would not get the sense that this team is winning or doing much better or or you know I don't I didn't feel like there was really an arc so, to these characters. Do you want to know what my theory is the problem with this movie? And this is pure conjecture. But right. I I think to me the problem is Paul Newman right like he's he's a big star in the 70s is you know he is definitely his star is descending but right he was already older when he made this movie he's his big work was like in the like 50s and 60s but he is still a big name and you can yeah. even see it on the poster that you have they're selling it with him yeah, yeah it's paul newman in slapshot yeah, it's and him his, and a bunch of young character actors. And his character isn't that interesting. 
he's, you know, he's kind of this old hustler who's like, you know, on his way out of the of his career. I feel like if the movie had focused more on Michael Ontkeen's character, uh, Ned, who who didn't who was always, I think, more of the moral voice of this movie, he, you know, throughout the whole thing, he's like, you know, I don't want to be playing this goon hockey. I'm not going to just fight people. I want to play hockey for hockey's sake. I, I feel like all of the dramatic tension is with his character, right? Like his franchise is going in a direction that he doesn't like. He wants to play, you know, the, the sort of pure version of the sport. But his obsession with the sport is causing him to ruin his relationship with his wife. Like all of the juice is there, but he is just sort of forced into this background role. My favorite part of the movie is is the the crux of the, the climax of the movie, because it, it, it's him finally sort of shaking off this uh, 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 devotion to hockey, seeing like all right, if this is what sells, if this is the spectacle, I'm going to become a part of the spectacle. And it, it I think, also makes some of the sexual politics a little less icky. Um, I, I really enjoyed the last, like, 15 minutes of the movie because I felt like this was, oh, okay, they're actually saying something here. Well, like, that was the only game that felt like something uh, happened. a moment in the movie where... Yeah where there was some dramatic stakes happening everywhere else when they're having these, you know, basically, and if you want to talk about editing, uh, you know, it's just like these scenes of these guys uh, slamming into each other, punching each other out, the audience going nuts. Then we cut to the announcer guy and there's some, you know, not great comedic bits going on mm -hmm. there. And then it, then they're on the bus again, and I'm like, and then well, and then that, we're that just kind of happens. Paul Newman like trying to get his ex wife back, and I, again, talk about a movie that should have been ninety minutes. There is so much of Paul Newman sort of running around, fucking hustling people that should have fucking cut from this movie, or uh, or at the very least been more interesting. And I think I think you could even have the the juxtaposition between Michael on Keen as this Oh uh, absolutely yes. Yeah. You know, as this young idealistic player versus Paul Newman who's like this grizzled old goat who just wants to get out well, uh, I mean, and uh, get out on top. I think cr cr if they'd created uh, dramatic tension between them through the story. I mean, there, you could. There's a thousand I, different ways you could do this movie better. Uh, and, also, I think uh, there's a thousand different sports movies who have done this better. Like, uh, honestly, I think in this movie is probably just as dated as far as humor goes. Um, but if you look at Major League, uh, you know about this ragtag sure. baseball team that sort of has to come together to try and save the franchise, like. That's a, a, a basic sports movie formula. It's great, right? And yeah. you get that a little bit more with um, Charlie Sheen as this young, wild rookie and um, um, Tom Berenger as the grizzled vet. I, I feel like 
I feel like that dynamic feels a little bit more earned in movies post Slapshot. Um, right. And but this movie feels similar. like it's kind something of, very similar in Bull Durham. Something um, similar in Caddyshack. Even five years later, I, I I think just the way the comedy dynamic had shifted, I, I feel like you would have gotten those things a lot more. I, I get that, you know, probably like our parents' generation probably thought this was like the funniest thing ever. Um, but right, I, I and just, they, it, it was so rowdy, and it was so, uh, and that holds up the route. It's still very rowdy, <laughs> right? I mean, right, and and I think there was there was there was sort of an appreciation of its raucous tone. I'm not saying the movie was trying to be progressive because it, it clearly wasn't, but it, it was trying to be transgressive. Right. And, and so right. It, it was trying to push boundaries. And sure, bec- you know, because of that, I think the politics of it are like I, I bet that people who were fans of this movie, if they watched it today, would probably be shocked at how much those slur words are thrown around and things like that, because right. it, it, it feels very rebellious. It feels very irreverent. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it feels very like, fuck, fuck the man, fuck the system. And there is inherently a progressivism within rebellion. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there, it, it definitely has a post-60s uh, yes. baby boomer quality to it, as does all the movies of the 70s. That's what made 70s movies 70s movies. Um, yeah, there's there's some weird growing pains, I think, in going on in this movie between <laughs> yes. between, you know, the films of like William Friedkin, you know, like something like uh, French Connection, which had, you know, racist characters as their leads. But you don't mm-hmm. watch that movie and feel that it's a racist film. Yes. Whereas this movie, you're never quite sure if the film's in on the joke or not. Um, totally. But. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can absolutely feel the influence that this movie had on, like, the films of Adam Sandler, uh, you know, the Happy Madison crew, uh, you can, on, uh, the Broken Lizard crew. Um, well, I, I mean, just look at The Water Boy or Happy Gilmore. Like, sure. You know what I mean? Oh, and. And again, that kind and of basically any hockey movie. I mean, well, any any sports movie that's like uh, this team is too ragtag. And I, I think you can even see the influence with stuff like um, Mighty Ducks. Uh, uh, oh, God, what's his name? Um, Judd Apatow. And, yeah, um, you know, even like Danny McBride and Eastbound and Down and stuff like you can see this, the evolution of it. And yeah, they grew up on this. This is part of their DNA. But and I also think that it is something that needed to evolve. Yeah. I mean, Com- comedy could not have stayed like this for very long. And I do think there's interesting stuff here, especially anthropologically. Mm-hmm. I just don't love it as a movie i you know i just don't think it's that entertaining i don't think it's that funny and i'm not not just because of the quote-unquote offensive stuff i have pretty thick skin i can deal 
Yeah. And that, sometimes I don't think it's always trying to be a comedy. I think there is actual dramatic beats, but the movie Actually, isn't, the, like, super selling those either. So, I, I, I don't know. Like For me, it doesn't hold up. But, no, I... I agree completely. I think uh, pretty much every sports movie that I've seen that has been influenced by this movie has done what this wants to do, but better. It wasn't that funny and it wasn't that. And again, another movie that was a half hour too long. Like this should have been a fucking 90 minute comedy. Uh, And it it, it just feels like tonally super exist yet. Well, so, there's a reason why we want it. <laughs> you know, it, it, this movie definitely wears out its welcome. Uh, by yeah. the end of it, I was like, okay, another hockey fight. Like, okay. Well, I, I would be fine with all of that as long as I knew or liked any of these characters. And, you know, uh, for as many people are in this movie, I feel like I, I don't get to know hardly any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'll give the movie some flowers just for for being the one of the first in like its place in overall sports movie history sure. yeah and you know trying to thematically do some interesting ish stuff but um yeah I, I if you've never seen this movie and you're let's say 45 years or younger i don't think you're going to get a lot out of it and I, I like older movies. Like, you know, I like. I think there's gr- terrific comedies from the 50s and 60s and even the 30s, you know, like Howard Hawks comedies and stuff like that. I would rather watch, you know, something as tightly scripted and performed as like His Girl Friday or like Funny Girl or... Sure. Yeah. You know, whatever. Like, pick your poison. I'd rather watch Pillow Talk than this movie. <laughs> you know, I, I agree. It, it 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 ultimately is just kind of an ugly, chaotic movie that that just gave me a little bit of a headache. Um I I did enjoy the Hansen brothers. I thought they were a lot of fun. Um uh I didn't like how the other characters treated them. Um, but there was this sort of earnestness to their characters that made them stand out. I also, uh, think it's worth mentioning that the, uh, this, this is like my sole knowledge of this movie before I saw it. Um, the guy who was like the, the captain of the Syracuse team at the end, uh, the, the one that gets like the bounty put on his head, uh, McCracken or, or whatever, the way he looks was the visual inspiration for Wolverine as a oh, character in the X-Men comics. Um, uh, that That is like my sole knowledge of this movie previous was, oh, this is the movie where Wolverine came out of, kind of. Um, so in my head, like, that is kind of how I picture Wolverine should look in, in like, on screen. Because uh, he's just this, like, squat, little hairy fucking asshole. Um, especially Wolverine in this time in the comics. Uh, I just thought that was a fun little bit of trivia. Um, so the next episode we're doing, we're going to have a guest on. And they've selected our homework. 
Uh, we'll be watching the movie Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai from 1999, and that's available to watch on HBO Max. And if anybody has to say anything about any of the topics we talked about or any of the movies that we reviewed on this episode, you can reach out to us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. Uh, and what are we on? We're on everything. We're on uh, Twitter. We're on Instagram. We have a letterbox. We have a TikTok. We're on YouTube. I just op- uploaded our last episode. Like, if you want to watch the full episode as a YouTube link, you can. I also put in timestamps if you just want to watch certain reviews or certain segments. Um, yeah, you can uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on whatever podcast app you use to listen to us. Um, and you can uh, read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by looking up Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page. And you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Uh, and be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Uh, yeah, you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, not X, Twitter, uh, because it's going to be Twitter forever. Elon Musk can go fuck himself. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, also, if you're interested in seeing me perform live, uh, come check out my show Improv vs. Stand-Up at Mockingbird Improv. And that'll be it. Are you saying that there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Bye.